Hey, Consume listeners, Jamie Lewis here. I've been wanting to try new formats for the podcast, and this sixth season, I changed things up a bit. Every guest this season is a person of color in the wine and food industry, and roughly half of the interviews are conducted by Justin Tribu, a young black winemaker with a talent for honesty and conversation. This is a temporary format. I'll be back to hosting all the episodes myself next season, but it feels like a really important change this time around. As much as I could, I wanted to facilitate real discussion, and Justin's input and guidance helped a lot with that. I would have had her do all 10 episodes, but she was in the throes of harvest. So for what she was able to contribute, I'm very grateful. You may want to hear my interview with Justin first and listen on from there. Oh, and yeah, we're on Zoom again for these episodes. In any case, thank you so much for listening and happy sixth season of Consumed. Consumed is sponsored by my friends at Slow Life Magazine, for whom I write the food column. For the 2020 October-November issue, I'm writing about ribs in Slow County, and I included the Rib Line in Grover Beach, G Brothers in San Luis Obispo, and Miss Odette's Creole Kitchen in Paso Robles. It's been a sticky week around here, let me tell you, but I'm putting the finishing touches on the article now. If you live in San Luis Obispo or Avila Beach, check your mailbox for Slow Life Magazine every other month. And if you don't already get it, subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. Consumed is also supported by James Onaveros at Ranchos de Onaveros Wine in the Santa Maria Valley. If you haven't already listened to my episode with James in season one, I'll tell you, he's a ninth generation agriculturalist with roots that go back to when California was governed by Spain. His ancestors had this massive land grant and it was sold off in pieces until there was nothing left but he and his parents worked hard to buy back a parcel that overlooks the land that used to be their family's, and James planted his Pinot Noir vineyard there with his own two hands at the tender age of 23. I think one of the craziest things about James is that his last name, Onaveros, means the one true vine. The coolest part of his story, though, is that the wine is absolutely beautiful, with a very Burgundian style and influence. Taste that storyline for yourself by visiting the station in Los Alamos, where Ranchos de Onaveros wines are sold, along with elevated Santa Maria-style cuisine from Chef Conrad Gonzalez. For more information, visit ranchosdeonaveros.com or thestationlosalamos.com. Marbu Mark is a veteran of the California wine industry, particularly as a wine consultant in Napa Valley, where he lives. But his work has taken him all over, including to Pismo Beach on the Central Coast, where he is winemaker for Oceano Wines and vintner Rachel Martin, using fruit from the Spanish Springs Vineyard. Marbu spoke with guest host Justin Trebu, discussing the wildfires threatening his home and the vineyards of Napa Valley, his childhood in Freetown, Sierra Leone, his education in the wine and vit program at UC Davis, being like a fixer in the wine industry, and having what he calls a global heart. Marbu said things I've never heard in a consumed interview before. Definitely listen to his advice to his younger self. It's super interesting. And don't be surprised if you find yourself hungry for osobuco or duck confit. Marbu definitely has good taste. Okay, here's Justin Trebu's conversation with winemaker Marbu Mark. So we're going to start off with some basics. Firstly, where did you grow up? Freetown, Sierra Leone, west coast of Africa. Fabulous. What was it like growing up there? Uh, it's, it was great. I grew, I tell everybody the Freetown I grew up in does not exist anymore. Unfortunately. Okay. I mean, Freetown is still there, but the society and the culture doesn't really exist. I mean, it's a, it's a, um, uh, I grew up through the, you know, I was kid. I mean, I left at 15 plus, so I not fully grown up, but, um, it, it was post-colonial, you know, uh, it was the height of when um, education and there was a lot of hopes for uh, a new country through the 80s. And unfortunately, during my lifetime, uh, things have backslid. But uh, so growing up there, I grew up in the capital city. It was, uh, I, I believe, in my earlier, I, I, I saw the best of, um, of, of that experience. So it's a coastal, coastal uh, city. You're right on the coast. Um, uh, a lot of education. So the, uh, the, the schooling is all, they all, 
the very first of the Sierra Grammar School where um, most of my family went and I started was at the um, 1845, it was built in 1845. My mom was Annie Walsh and that was really soon after that also. So the first two and then of course the uh, University of Sierra Leone was also one of the first uh, universities in the west coast of Africa. So it's, uh, it, was, it was a good place and it's a very small community. Um, at that point in time, there was only one million people in the entire country. So, yeah. So very small. Um, I tell people, if you've ever been to Kauai in, in Hawaii, that's pretty much how it was. You, you basically drive to one end of, uh, of uh, Freetown to the other in, in really two hours. Do you go back often? Uh, no, I have not been back in 10 years. Okay. I used to go back often. But uh, 10 years ago, uh, well, ten years ago, to be honest, 10 years ago, I, I, uh, the corruption and the, uh, and the, uh, it's just, it's just sad. Like I said, the place I grew up with doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the current environment is not ideal. So, um, that became a big detractor. Yes. And, and then, and then of course my mother, um, age and my mother and stepfather who were there moved, um, to the U.S. They moved to, um, uh, and settled in, uh, finally full-time settled in DC. So need to go and I one of my favorite uncles passed away also so a lot of people that I was really close to are not there anymore right so it just the need to go home you know there's just there's not the culture and there's not the people so it's just the name and a place at that point in time unfortunately um where did you move to in the United States when you came out here I moved to Sacramento okay so. My dad, so my, my parents divorced, making Sydney understand. So my dad, um, in the eighties moved here. Uh, my parents were divorced, my mom remarried, but I, my mom raised me until I was 15 plus. So I graduated school there and then came here. I graduated early and, um, to see if I would pursue higher education here or in London. And anyway, so my dad, um, he had come, the U.S. government sent him here to work at UC Davis. And so he had met a woman there. They started the family and they lived in Sacramento and she commuted into Davis. Um, anyway, so that's, uh, so that's how I ended up getting here. So I went to Sacramento and, and yeah, and from there to Davis, Davis, uh, onto the wine work. Right. What was it like in Sacramento? Um, I was, how was um, adjusting. Um, uh, you know, I was only, I was only in Sacramento for well, only, um, but for, Two and a half, three years. Okay. So, um, I wasn't there for a long time. It was, um, it was a little scary uh, because, uh, you know, it's a totally different culture. Now, one of the yeah. benefits, one of the benefits I had was I had the option of going to finish out and get the credits I needed to go to Davis at a, a junior college. So what I did was I took that opportunity and and they had a science junior college because consumers junior college, and that's what I and I used that and that. That gave me a, it was a better environment than if I had to go in and do a year of high school to get a year of American history, which is what, what I needed. Uh, but the ability to go to junior college, I think, made the transition a lot easier. And I met uh, people, you know, kids who were also trying to get, who went to school here, but were in that same vein, trying to get into college. So it was a little easier. Uh, and I and I was blessed. I mean, I met a my best friend, Sheru, still best friend to this day. Yes. Each, each other's kids. Um, and he, and we bonded. I met him like the, the first day and uh, his family basically, someone, someone adopted me also, uh, my Indian family. Um, he's, he's the Indian, they adopted me. And, and I think that was a protection. So mm-hmm. took care of me and that gave me structure and support and a place to go. And somebody who already grew up here knew a lot about you know and and but these the cultures were similar in that you know and so all that other thing and so it worked out and i think that really actually to be honest is what um made the transition easier for me you found your community i love that yeah yeah no i was i was very blessed in that um i mean i have been very blessed all the way through uh, <laughs> i found communities where I, people have supported me wherever i've gone yeah so. That's so, what's your um, what's your relationship with food? What are some of your favorite dishes that you eat? Oh, I eat everything. <laughs> <laughs> the only downside for me is I, um, I, uh, I, old age has pointed out that I, 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 I have a very high sensitivity and allergy to gluten. 
But okay. yeah, but you know, I never, I, I, I had not in the early days when I was in college, in the twenty something. I didn't eat pizza or beer because it made me bloated. Even though I made beer at Davis, right? Um, but I didn't drink it, and I did not know. No, that was before it was cool, right, to be gluten free. So I just avoided it. But I love bread, um, really good bread. Um, so I only eat bread when I went to like really fancy restaurants and stuff. But uh, uh, um, so, I, but I still eat everything. Um, I, I am a big um, flavor. So flavor is important to me. Actually, I should come back and say that. It's kind of a method method for my life. Uh, I mean, I grew up eating very ripe fruits because I grew up on the coast, right? Yes. Um, and I really grew up um, eating in you know, an African culture. It's like the louder you speak, the more you mean it, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> illustrative, right? So, and in that same way with food, um, the more flavorful it is, the more impactful it is, uh, you know, that's kind of what's what's valued. Right. You know, if the ginger beer is really, really strong, the ginger beer is really, really good. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and um, uh, so so in, in that same vein, we feel I look for a lot for that. So I eat varied things. I mean, I, you know, I love Indian food by curries. But then I, so I, I grew up with this Indian family part of. Right. Yeah. So but definitely curries and rice dishes because they're similar to African foods. They're all based on rice and it's a basically a. A sauce on it. Um, so I, I really gravitate to that. Um, my interesting here, that uh, Chinese food is different than what we were exposed to in Africa. So okay. here, so that's really been an education for me going, having access to San Francisco Chinatown has really opened my eyes to Chinese dishes. Um, as that's been really, uh, so, and even Thai dishes. So you know, yes. that, right. So that really opened, that's really, it's been a really a broad existence for me. Uh, uh, um, you know, and as I've gone in this business, I've really come to appreciate some of the finer hostas in, in the world, right? Yeah. Not, not the, you know, when I grew up, when I, my first experience of Italian food was going into London and Pizza Hut was a big thing on, <laughs> oh, no. on, on Regent Street. So you go down and you know, have pizza, had a slice of pizza with a knife and a fork. Really bad. I, this is what this is way back, right? Before we had globalization took hold. Yes. Uh, I already got it. But, um, back then it just was, everything was a little weird, but, uh, in the eighties, but, um, and I was, <laughs> I don't know what it was. Uh, but now I, I've really come to appreciate, right? You know, I, I mean, I, I've, I've been blessed to experience, you know, really fine raviolis that are handmade, you know, with truffle and all this really special. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so stuff like that. It's like, yeah. Um, I get it. Um, oh, I should buy. So, and I should always say, all foods I have my favorite. So, Italian, I'm just thinking about it. Osavuco. Yes. Love that. Um, you know, uh, uh, French. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a little biased to Doc Confit. I know the, you know, just Bordeaux Lays because I spent a lot of time in Bordeaux. So, Doc Confit, I'm a little partial to that. And of course, I have to have the, the French, French, the frites in duck fat. You know, yes, and and I wash that down with a little bubbles. That kind of goes with it. So, um, you know, so it all depends where I'm at. You know, uh, uh, I love food. That's for I sure. love food. Yes, I, I, I there's very few I don't eat. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the most notable places you've traveled to in your life? Most notable. So uh, notable for me, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, 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 um, experience wise, and I, I, there's, there's many, uh, top of mind, I'll say in America, Hawaii, because, um, that was an eye opener for me. I, in my study of American history, I had a very good American history teacher, uh, who's from New York, from Brooklyn. When I was doing, when I was in college, I learned a lot about some of, the background about what's going on today in the world, right? Yes. That's not so good. And, and I had gone to this talk about the background of what happened in Hawaii and all that stuff. So I promised I'll never go. And life happened and I went. And the water in Hawaii is crystal clear. I've never been to the uh, crystal clear uh, ocean. And I grew up on the ocean, right? And so yeah. it was just amazing to me. I had never experienced that. So that I thought was very significant as far as but then also the other part about Hawaii was I wanted to be where the locals work. I wanted to support the locals. And 
the very first day I was in Maui, went into the city right by the airport. I can't remember the name. And my now wife, but she was then my girlfriend. We were, uh, we, were we went to the um, to have breakfast at a local place and where the locals went. We we stopped there, and everybody called you uncle and auntie. Yes, all the locals did, and and that's how they referred to each other, and that's how I grew up. It was just mind blowing to me, you know, and 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 it just it just brought a lot of memories of me growing up, and yeah. uh, here in America, having that experience was, um, uh, it was meaningful. So I think that's meaningful there, and of course, uh, I mean, from but from the wine side, I would say, um, if you go to Bordeaux, it was great. Um, I, I had a lot of great experiences. I think um, I'm trying to. Th- Pick one. I mean, you have, <laughs> you have so many experiences um, uh, um, when you do these wine trips. I mean, I think Bordeaux. I'm trying to think which one was more the most. There's, there's so many moments in in, in in well, I've made multiple trips. When did you uh, first go to Bordeaux? Actually, I went late in my career. I went. Okay. I went um, surprisingly late. I went in um, 2000, 2007. and okay. Well, it was December two thousand eight, actually. Okay. No, Joe, January two thousand eight. End of it was at the end of two thousand seven harvest, as I remember it. After two thousand two thousand seven harvest. I, I love a post harvest trip. Yeah, no, it just works out because everything's quiet at the winery, as you well know. Oh and yeah. It's quiet over there, um, and and it works out. Everybody gets to see you. Um, they're back from the holidays. They're not really quite doing their on premiere blends yet. Those guys yeah. don't get to try to taste that. So it's um, it's a good thing. So I, I mean, I did I on Bordeaux. Um, I think maybe just thinking about it, I think Orbrion being at the tower of Orbrion. Um, I think that was probably the first most impactful moment um, because um, seeing how the city of Bordeaux grew around Orbrion. Yes. And being up in the tower, and it's supposed to be exclusive. Tell you, of course, it tastes exclusive. It probably is, you know. <laughs> um, and and I'm up in the tower, and I thought that was really impactful. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, cognac. Just seeing the history in cognac was pretty yes. cool. Um, trying because that really gives you a further understanding of where stuff came from. Um, 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 you know, I mean. Go on and on and on. Um, yeah. Oh, and what, what, another thing that was probably impactful, particularly from the wine side, um, going to um, to Chile was in, was actually impactful, very very impactful. Um, uh, and there, understanding and being there on the ground and realizing how cheap labor was, yes, you know, and how they could effectively be more effective at organic. So organic there is sort of like a big thing in how they are. Like ninety percent, probably seventy five percent, but really we're like ninety. They shoot for ninety percent um, export, right? So export. Yeah. So the whole the whole dynamic, the whole way they think, the whole way they process is for the export market. I mean, counter to what you know, at least I do here, everything is really hundred percent for the local market. So right. Um, um, and you know, in French, it's much more established in France because they have their patterns. But Chile, when I went was just exploding at the time. Um, I mean, this is back in 2005, so you could just see all the wheels turning and see what it takes, so. Right. So let's talk about how you got into wine. I know you were initially set up on the pre-med path. How was adjusting your career goals and were your parents and family supportive? Um, I I did wine for fun because at the time I drank wine and it was only beverage, as I mentioned, I didn't like beer. Right. um, and, uh, uh, so it was natural. It was just the natural thing. Um, okay. and, and so I remember the, the, um, the gentleman at, uh, UC Davis, I, I have to look who, who, who the gentleman's name up. I've told this story so many times, <laughs> uh, but it, he was a Dean of summer sessions. And I went to see him because, uh, the lady nutrition science did not want all she kept insisting was I just need a paperwork so you can graduate. And I'm like, well, I want to graduate because I just, I just left my internship and I'm going to finish it, but I'm not, I don't want to do what I want to do. So I got to come up with something else because yeah. that's not a problem. 
So as you, you go see the dean of summer sessions because there was nobody to talk. There's no counselors in the nutrition science department. So we're fine. Run over to the dean and he said to me, what do you love? And he goes, wait, take your time and decide what you love and come back and see me. So I went for a week, decided, came back and he goes, what do you love? And I said, literally, food and booze. Yes, choose that. And that's why I said, literally food and booze. That was my job. <laughs> I was not even a 21-year-old this time. He didn't even ask, like, good for him. And he said to me, okay, fine. He pulled out the UC Davis catalog and he goes, okay. And he goes, you know, you could look, he goes, you have really good grades, which I had top grades, obviously, because what I was doing before. And he goes, all right, so we have the number two food science program. We have the number one brewing program. We have a wine program. And, and, and we literally, and that was that. And I did not want to do food because at the time I was cooking my way through school. Yes. And the idea of it, so that was not going to happen because I was working. Right. I was just not going to happen. I was Separation. Like, yeah. So I was like, no, I've already done the food thing. This is not going to work for me. Um, and so then, um, and then it was basically down to beer and wine. And I was at the time planning on going home. So I, I said, okay, fermentation science gives me coverage. I'll make wine for, I'll make wine for fun. I learned how to make beer and go do that for a profession if I need to. But at the time, I was planning on doing graduate school and not actually, you know, this was just for fun. I didn't, I didn't have an envision of being a winemaker for a career. Um, that was never part of the dream at the time. So that answers your question. Oh, if the parents are supportive, interestingly, um, they were supportive for the change. Um, although I think they, uh, they, they thought it was a temporary thing. Okay. They thought wine was a transitionary thing. I, I, I tell people, okay, maybe now, maybe 10 years ago, they got, no, I wasn't. Maybe six, seven, after I got married, I think they quit asking me about when I was in a real job. But <laughs> I got a real job for a long, long time. Yeah, for a long time, everybody asked me, when you get a real job? Not my parents, but all the aunts, you know, because your parents don't want to be the bad guys, so they have the aunts that. Yes, so, of course. So that's how it works. <laughs> so what was your first job in the industry? And first what job, do you do now? Well, okay, so that's an interesting question. So first job, actual first, first job would be I was an elf for Ann Noble. Okay. I mean, I think that's the real first job because that was, I was an elf, which is basically the guy that sets up and cleans up and all the sensory and lab analysis for the sensory science department at UC Davis. Yes. My first job. And I was very happy to get the job because I went from I could quit my uh, my grill cooking job and then I can do I can work in the business. So that was my real first job. So I transferred in the department and uh, and uh, I had a lot of I should one of the reasons why I got in the line. So I had, I was had top statistics grades, obviously in math grades. So I, mean, I had to do food food statistics for uh, brewing. So I did it and got top grades. And did it. she needed a st- statistician for century science. So that's how I ended up become a especially in sensory science, because then I fell in love with that noble and the whole process in sensory, but that was my first job. Setting it up, pouring the glasses, getting set up, blind tasting, pulling yeah. on, washing it, and I knew nothing about wine, I started there. Okay. Uh, that was the first, very, very first um, uh, industry paid job. Yes. <laughs> and when did you first fall in love with wine? Because getting your first job and falling in love is totally different. Well, I mean, I was, I, I mean, um, I love the wine. I love the taste of wine. So I grew up drinking wine. My, so my, my, both my grandfathers, uh, my mom and dad's side, both were rearing that they loved wine. Okay. In a beer culture, in a British culture, they loved wine and they loved nice wine. So, uh, and my, my paternal grandfather, he got it from his dad. Who worked for the French government in Guinea, the neighboring country. So he grew up with that culture of drinking and he introduced okay. it to my, I'm not sure how my maternal grandfather picked it up, but he loved wine. So every family meal, and in our, not all, in most cultures, I mean, we get together the big family. So I will, Sunday after church, you go over to your grandfather's or grand, your grandparents' house and you have a meal, you sit down, you had a drink, you, there's wine and we could pour it for us. You taste wine if you liked it. And I, and I, and I love the taste. I always love the taste. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, so that's, I, I didn't know what it meant, but I just love the taste of wine. So I think I was in love with it then. Uh, so for, but I think the real aha that there's something magic about wine was I made a sauce as I was cooking in Davis. I was going to make a pasta sauce and I did not know much about, you know, again, I was talking about the Italian. I just you know, grew up with it. Um, 
So I was going to make a pasta sauce from scratch for the then girlfriend. Yeah. And, and I was talking to the head chef because I was basically a sous chef to call me a cook's help or whatever. I was got set up. It was, it was like the best job to have because you didn't work the whole shift, but you just worked pre and you got to have two meals, the meal that you walked in on the week after. So college student was great. It was a great thing for college student, but I got the, uh, I talked to the head chef. I said, Hey man, I want to, I need to make this sauce. What are the keys should I keep in mind? He goes, buy the most expensive bottle you can afford. Yeah. And it will change the sauce. I'm like, wait, yeah. So I'm like, I knew about the, the, I knew about the tomatoes and everything else. But I said, what's the key? I mean, he goes, yeah, I just buy the most expensive. Um, uh, and so I made the sauce before for it. So I tried this. It's Valentine's Day. And it, I mean, and I, it was, um, Alexander Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. And I believe, I can't remember who it was. I believe it was AVV from Alexander Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. I don't remember. I think it was somebody else because it was 20 bucks at the time. And that was a lot of money. And, um, and I, and, and it definitely changed. It definitely changed the wine, um, uh, the, the sauce. I'm like, this is mm. the sauce I've ever made. And I went, wow, wow, wine could do that. Just like, <laughs> that. whoa, the impact was, you know, yeah. day, and, you know, you know, and so I'm tasting it. So I had to go taste the wine, taste the sauce. I'm like, wow, there's something to another. Yeah, I never really paid that close attention to the wine and the layers in it. So I'm, I'm, I was investigating. That was when I was sort of hooked to, the impact of what wine was. There was something more than just drinking it and enjoying it. There was something behind its layers to it. Hey there, a quick interlude to talk about another one of my supporters. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality products and exceptional customer service. Community-owned Slow Food Co-op buys from local producers, ensuring that they offer their customers real and sustainable food. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and environmentally sustainable packaging. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. So you've been in the wine industry for a while. What are some ways in which it's changed for the better and ways it's changed for the worse and ways it's stayed stagnant? Uh, that's, that's, a big, that's, a, that, that's a big one. Um, it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, um, okay, so the wine industry. Um, in general, I would say um, the wine industry is by nature, unfortunately, which I think is not better. It, it doesn't change very well. Um, it's uh, it's not dynamic. That's the word. Yeah. It's dynamic industry, um, and okay, now back up. Mostly to say, and I'll say in California in general. I'll just say in California. Let, let's not make it all. Like I think. I mean, like when I was in Chile, I thought they they have a dynamic industry there. Um, I've heard of people going to Uruguay doing some dynamic things. The people, I mean, different parts of France are doing some pretty exciting stuff. If you go outside of Santa Maria, um, there are people doing some. You know, there's stuff happening. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, yeah, there's some dynamic things happening um, around the world of wine, but in general, um, the wine world, circa after the nineties, I think, it's basically become much more of um, it's sort of the word is, I'm trying to let me try to phrase this properly. It's actually kind of fulfilled its own prophecy almost. So it's sort of self, self, um, re, re, right? So basically you are the, you know, it's the same people, the same ideas, the same approach because the, the feedback loop, the, 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 the you know, the, the, the ratings say this, so they believe that and it just kind of chased itself into this whole thing. So it's just the same, the same story. There's nothing yeah. dynamic about it. Um, in general. So that's, but that's really the story of the last 20 something years. I, I do believe the next 20 something years, just because, I mean, it's part of COVID is going to break it. It, it wasn't going to change, but COVID um, is going to break it. The wildfires, um, global warming is going to change that. So there are a lot of questions, obviously, um, health, people's health is going to be, is going to change that. Um, uh, so the conversation is going to change. I mean, obviously the generation going from 
the prior generation that was basically in love with wine, saw wine from the French and saw, you know, celebrated. So the guys who were buying it, basically guys in the 50s, 60s, um, uh, they're going to roll out and the next batch of people are probably going to ask different questions. And so we'll see. But that's, so that's, I think, the big stain. Um, obviously, technology is um, is quite different from when I started to now. So when I think about, um, you know, the tracking systems, you know, I can get on online now and check wine. Um, I can pick who can look at it. I mean, all this stuff that was, I mean, so that's a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, you know, um, you know, monitoring, you know, the, all these maps of the vineyards they can take now. That's the, that's new infrared technology. So technology has an impact. Um, uh, um, and, you know, and, and really, well, different people. I, maybe it's time because the information was always there. Yes. It's, people haven't had the time. And yeah. I think, um, so because uh, in reality why making a lot of these things that is saying you know the clay pots whatever is that's not really new okay um barrel fermentation that's not really new um um uh they just <laughs> i took a class in bordeaux and it's a classic line i want to say it very important um and uh, uh jean-philippe roby said this so i'm going to give credit he's a professor at the university of Bordeaux, and he said you know it's kind of very funny because you got to very be very careful. Every about 10, 15 years, you're going to repackage the same thing or every 10, 20 years, the same idea that was proven wrong again for something else. Mm-hmm. So you just always got to go back to the principle. So yes. I, 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 I um, um, so a lot of things are like that, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, yeah. I mean, it, the industry from starting to where I am now, I think the biggest thing is I've, I've learned a lot more about a lot of reasons. I don't necessarily know, necessarily know the industry has changed as much. I mean, you know, they have more. I mean, it's always like, for example, all right, now they don't have, they have three. We had, we had like two main critics, right, when I got out of school. Now they have a whole bunch, but they're all doing the same thing that they to do. So it's pretty much the same thing, right? So, yeah. Right? Uh, so it's not, so, so, so really it's not different. It's different, but it's not really different. So, anyways, um, don't want to go go further. So, the, the industry really is very much steric. There, of course, there's advances in the technology. Um, oh, and I would also say, well, the consumer is definitely more um, informed than they yes. were before, right? So, yeah. that, I should say that. I mean, direct, the tasting experience was not as important, uh, was not as, I mean, when I got in business, that was not even, you know, you didn't even think about that. So, that right. Uh, people coming out wanting to be Napa, Sonoma, and tasting rooms in Paso Robles. And yeah. I mean, cheapest. I mean, it's tasting rooms in, you know, everything is now exploded. So that's I, different. I mean, so I mean, that is a totally different thing. Um, and you, but unfortunately, COVID is moving us back to the old, the, the dark ages. So, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, yeah. So. so, stemming off of that question, what wine is in your glass and why? Um, is it sustainable, not just in the natural wine sense, but in the ways um, vineyard workers are treated, production workers are treated, vineyard practices, et cetera? You know, wine is not is not just a luxury item. It's an agricultural product as well. So what does that mean to you? All right. So we wine in glass, obviously not literally now. Yes, but you should because I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I did I, I did that note and I, 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 I was but I am going to be in the vineyard first thing in the morning. Oh yeah, in uh, my sister winemaker to do some t- test. Uh, we're going to do some uh, tests with all the smoking. In the, in oh the- fun! Oh not fun! Not fun! Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, so so go do some evaluations early in the morning and get some do a test batch. But um, I would say um, uh, uh, so. But in general, so typically, typically I I, I would drink. Wine in a glass that I personally would drink. Um, usually, if it's from California, it's usually somebody. If I'm actually drinking it. Somebody I know. Yes. Uh, um, and so I'm usually drinking it. It's kind of like I approach that as far as because I know how hard it is in this business. I know how how hard it is that people get recognized. So I always try to support 
people that I've actually got to be connected with. Yeah. The majority of time, I, I actually have a wine in my glass. It's something I know and respect. I do believe in sustainability, and I do believe in organics, but in parts of the wine business, those are not um, – they are counterbalanced, right? So when somebody says – so in my opinion, if, you want to, if you're going to be sustainable, part of being sustainable is running an operation that is sustainable. So put it this way. I have – I work in the obviously luxury end of the business. Mm-hmm. Our wine here that cost nine figures to build. They sell less than a thousand cases, right? It, even though they sell for quote unquote 300 plus dollars a bottle, it is not sustainable because they have a lot of waste. Right, right. Exactly right. So that is not in my mind a sustainable model. It's just mostly it's mostly a um, Asset appreciation. Yes. <laughs> Somebody who's much smarter than me told me that's what it is. Um, <laughs> it's asset appreciation. So somebody has a lot of money, wants to park some money, and wants to appreciate it, so he parks some money there. Put it like an ideal way, put it in an ideal sense. Uh, I, I did run into a fine gentleman, and of course I don't remember the, the Chateau now, because um, I wanted to meet somebody quite unique this trip to Bordeaux. This was last year, 2019. And he was quite clear in its purpose. And the, the guys in, in Cognac, when you meet a Cognac maker, is quite like that. Their purpose, he was he was quite clear. His purpose was to steward the vineyard for the next generation. Because yes. he worked by, before his dad before him and the guy before him. Yes. And decision to, whatever decision he made was how was he going to best get it to the next generation. That was the attitude. Um, you know, and so when they talk there about sustainability, it's really literally about how do you sustain this? You know, what is truly sustainable? Um, uh, you know, I, I got luxury of going to Sancerre this past year and the winemakers there are really talking about, okay, if Sancerre is going to be exist going forward, we have to have a location that people will come visit. So they literally chipped in all the winery winemakers to purchase uh, this old church, basically, and that overlooks all of Sancerre, so you can they can point it out. But the key that I think is interesting was to get a to get up and tour, and that to get you all the way to the top level, you have to be taken by a winemaker, and it's all by volunteer. Yes. So, you, so they don't pay somebody to sit there, you know, like an organization who, who represents them. They personally are all that committed. So not financial funds, but the the personal time commitment that all, so a winemaker will take whoever it is they want to tour go because they thought it was that important. That's incredible. Yeah, but that, that's the commitment, right? Um, and, and so that's when I see Susan. So, of course, so I don't have bought wine and I, I support that region. I tell them that story. And that's what I think is for me sustainable. You know, but the idea that, oh, wine has SO2 or not, well, okay. I agree. Yeah. Hey, I mean, the whole point of wine is to drink it. If it doesn't make exactly. wine. In a dream world, we will not add SO2, yes. But the reality is it needs to taste good. It comes yes, out. Yes. It's a commercial product. You have people's jobs on the line. And yes. they enjoy it. So it's, yes, there's a very small percentage that are can be allergic. But if you make wine properly and don't use excess SO2, you're going to be fine. Yes. I mean, and you, don't, you will not have a problem. If excess SO2 is the problem. Exactly. And, and by the way, if you don't use grape concentrate, that's why cheap wine gives that Grape concentrate has hundreds of parts per million of SO2. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you got to keep it stable. So you drink cheap wine, you're not, the wine is giving you headaches. It's the concentrate that it added to make it sweet. Yes. <laughs> and so it's just, these are the fundamental things about the industry, anyways. So, yeah. so you've had a hand in making wines for some of the best known brands in the in the country, but you've also made plenty of small lot wines as well as your own. How do these experiences differ from each other, and how they affected each other as well? So interesting. Um, they're quite different. Obviously, my, my um, uh, being a corporate winemaker is um, is awesome. So if you get to do it, do it. Um, particularly get to do for do it for AJ Gallowiney, do it. Um, okay. Um, I tell people always, and this is serious. If I had, if I was married and had a child, 
I probably would still be Gallup. <laughs> okay, I, I would probably would it. But I, I had no reason to stay. I was just living on. I was young. I, I was smart, and I, I don't have expensive habits. I don't play computer games. I don't have any super expensive things. So, um, you know, I, a, a, a big paycheck or a steady paycheck was not that important. Um, um, person, also the way I'm built. I, I, I these all kind of. I live my life. I. I want to be with integrity and at peace with myself. Right. And, um, and I, you know, I, I like the taste of wine. That's why I fell in love with this business, right? So I was tasting a lot of wine, uh, but not wine I would want to drink. Right. Decided if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, I want to taste wine I want to drink. Yes. So I had to make a decision that, you know, it's, it's a very, um, it's not a, it's a road less traveled. It's not highly rewarding, um, but and I'm just going to do the luxury, luxury wine thing, and so uh, and that's basically how it, I made that choice, and the rest is history. Um, uh, but I, I I do think there are that was a thing for me, but I think there are a lot of benefits from the corporate world. I think I thought more about wine. I had more intelligent conversations about wine. There's a much more um, you deal with much more what I call professionals, experts. Uh, yeah. When you're, corporate, when, you, when, you, when you're making corporate wine, um, so you actually deal with facts. You know, and then of course, you know, um, I would tell people if the corporate world really wanted to make the best wine, they could probably do it at, at a high level, but they don't mm-hmm. need to, so they don't. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and, and in a small wine, you are, you are, you know, it's basically you. And fortunately for me, I have an assistant winemaker. Typically it's just you. Yeah. Uh, trying to make, um, uh, make it happen. So. It works out. So tell me more about Mark Wine Consulting. As a winemaking consultant, how do most wineries need help from you specifically? And what are some of the biggest challenges that they're facing currently? Other than the wildflowers, but fires, but including them as well. Um, So, uh, okay, so Mark Wine Consulting, basically it's me. Yeah, of (laughs) Uh, course. Yeah, Um, but basically it's all forms of consulting. So I've done... Um, um, primarily people, small wineries hire me to make wine for them, basically. Um, and, and primarily, and it kind of goes with what my expertise is primarily there are people who own vineyards who are very, have a very strong sense that includes Cobble Vineyard, even Italics Wine Growers have a very strong sense that the vineyard and the site is important, but the translation is somewhere missing. They've tried and it's not kind of worked. So usually, I'm usually called to say, okay, this is what I want to get done. Or like Oceano Wines, for example, where she had a very clear picture in her mind of what she wanted to get done. And so the idea was, okay, and she needed an expert to tell her, okay, these grapes that I'm really passionate about, can they really give me where I want to go? I don't want to spend five years figuring it out. Can he help me? And, then, and at that point, if I really want to go there, I don't want to really experiment I really want to get there relatively sooner rather than later. So I need a professional telling me how to make sure we, we make these choices ideally on the way. And so that's, you hire me. Um, so typically, so that's how it works. Um, and that's how I've been called, but I've already, haven't, I've done anything from, I mean, I've lectured on sensory science. So a lot of people get me from educational purposes. So I have people ask me, Marvin, can you just talk to these people or talk to this group? I've talked to some tech groups before. Um, done tastings for them so they can really open their eyes and put together a tasting lineup so they can, stretch their palates so they can see different things. Um, so I've done on a small scale, but primarily um, it's, you know, you have a state vineyard and you really need to get to somewhere special. And um, I joked about this in Bordeaux, but basically when they were recapping my career, I'm like, I'm like the fixer, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like basically the fixer. So you can't get in the vine, you really, but you really have to want to go, to that spot, right? You, you, because I'm a technician. Uh, certainly, have, I mean, I bring art, technique, vineyard, all of it, all wrapped into one. So when you when you don't really know what the issue is, usually you call me. That's that's how it goes. That's pretty much it. So tell me more about Oceano wines. What's your favorite part about this brand? All right, so Oceano. I mean, I think well, like I said, I think my favorite part is we. Uh, I hate to use the word right correct because that's as far as some, but I, I, if I was going to start a brand, I think this is how 
I would do it. And it kind of that's how I started mine, actually. So yeah. when I when I did that, my but the idea was she had a really clear picture of her mind, and it was the site was going to make it or break, not going to make it, and she was going to move on. But the yeah. site made it, and it was a perfect match between the site and a, and, a, and an idea. And so she has a lot of European experience. I mean, she studied in, in, in Bordeaux. And so has and lives on the East Coast and has drinks and so she has much more of a European and East Coast style palate. The request requires higher acidity, freshness, yes. uh, and the site can give you that naturally. So yes. it works out. And so it was a match made in heaven. And she wanted to do something in California, and and to do California Chardonnay because that was the mainstay, and to basically make a statement that it can be done. And so and that's of course I like that part of it. Something that can't, you know, a lot of people, well, you can't make, uh, you can't make a fresh style Chardonnay that's balanced out of California. Well, you can. And so, and the site is perfect for it. So that's, that's really the goal. And I think, and to be honest, and I, I, and, and the Pinot Noir, I think, uh, is going to surprise a lot of people also. I mean, you just, cause in, in general, from this area. Yeah, but in general, because typically down that area, a lot of Pinot Noirs can be over-extracted, to be honest. Um, yes, they can. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, to get it a little ripe, and so then also the Chardonnay gets to be in barrel for too long. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, I mean, so they're just certain things. So I think there, there is a statement there, um, and and I think she's I think she's going to do pretty well eventually once everybody gets to taste her wine. I think she's going to do it. It's going to be special. What advice do you have for your younger self? <laughs> You're not going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> My younger self would say, um, uh, uh, would say, my younger self would say, stick with your original gut instinct and, um, and do something else. Okay. I, yeah. I, I, I think I get a real professional, get a real profession. Okay. Um, I think there's, I think there's adage in the, if I look back, at least in my lifetime, I think there's adage in having a professional, um, uh, uh, degree. And I, and I think a lot of, I mean, I just be, be well, not professional. I have a professional degree. I have an MBA. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think would be having a professional career. So another one, when do we travel globally? You right. know, a nurse, doctor, more to a certain extent, law changes, but engineer. Yeah. So something that is global, I think, would be just because I'm a global individual, global at heart. Um, um, I think the one thing that's one thing I will tell myself is that knowing myself, and I, I should have known that that I, I I did not realize how tied I would be to. I mean, I can't really leave Napa if I'm going to do what I do. It's uh, a tiring, yes, profession. So you 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 you're tied to certain locations. If you're gonna do it, I mean, there's nowhere else to go. There you go. Like my friend went up to Oregon to to Washington. A friend of mine and had a high job here and wants to go, go move back. Anyway, so she got a big job and they moved her to Washington. And it's like the wine is, you know, blah. Right. I mean, there's some really good ones there. That pops. There's some really good ones there, but you know. And I know they say we got global warming and maybe it's going to be the next snapper. Maybe we'll move there in 10 years. But, you know, realistically, uh, I mean, I think you, better, <laughs> you have a better shot down in, uh, in you know, in, in, in the coastal regions of Slow, really. Yes. Hello, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara County. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you got a better shot there. So, um, uh, yeah, so I, I think, so you just tie to certain locations. I mean, and that's that's different. So I think. That would be definitely one thing I'll give my my younger self. The uh, this was fun, but go with the original instinct that this was not a career. This was fun, and go get a <laughs> go get a real job. The old people said they the, 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 the young. There's, there's there's wisdom in in one of those old people used to say. Um, uh, <laughs> I would thank say you for your honesty. I feel very blessed to get where I am, but I think I think I would if I had to advise my younger self, I'd say. Uh, this may not be the path for me. I think okay. are, I think I think I think there for some people I think this would be, this would be better. I'll just buy the wine in the future. <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> but how do you make space for yourself on the daily? Because that is important. 
how do I make space for myself daily? Mm-hmm. Well, now, now with two kids, it's, it's definitely a bit of a challenge. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that's part of the reason why I don't have a glass of wine because I'm going <laughs> to I'm, I'm, I'm going to read to my boy here when I get get off of you. Um, bedtime routine is going to be pushed back a little bit, but I gonna, appreciate you. No, no worries, but I read to my three year old. It's become a special thing. Um, really, I've come to really enjoy it. So, um, so usually I typically have about half an hour after I read with him and my wife's uh, feeding the little one and before getting to bed, that's about half an hour. But I think that the major time I have is in the morning when I get up. I, well, after my, we have a almost two month old. So when my almost two month old starts sleeping for the night, I can start getting up again. But usually my time is in the morning. Okay. Before the sun comes up, that's my time. Um, my time in the vineyard in the morning. I'll be in there, like I said, early in the morning. Um, I love my- early morning vineyard sessions. Just walking up and down the rows. There's nothing quite like it. Yeah, no, that it's 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 real. I mean, I I uh, my favorite things about harvest here in Napa is uh, driving in middle of night. Uh, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning, see all the night, the, all the night. Like, yeah. you know, these bl- up in the hillsides, you probably during the day won't even know there's a vineyard in and just sort of. Just- <laughs> um, no, I love it. I love the piece. So, but pretty much my time is in the morning before I get into the, into work and that's it. Thank you so much, Marbu. I have one final question for you. And this is one of our signature consumed questions. And that is, if you knew today was your last day on earth, what would you eat and drink and with whom? Hmm. Hmm. All right. So I, I, my answer was always been my last bot. If I had ever had a bottle of wine to drink used to be, I'm going to say used to now, of course, used to be Chateau de Kim. And, um, and, and so, cause I believe that's the best wine in the world. So I, 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 I will have to say, I'll, I'll have to have Chateau de Kim with foie gras, um, um, to finish out. And then, um, uh, you know, and, and actually, it's my last meal on 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 this earth. I actually will have, um, uh, you know, I used to say all these fancy foods, but I don't, I actually have an African dish, cassava leaves. No, actually, I have. Yeah. I'll have obiata. It's called obiata. That's what I'll have. It's my favorite, and it, it is. Um, um, we call it fufu, and so you know, it's this bowl of cassava starch, and um, and. There's a dish called crane cray that's palm oil based, but they have the palm oil and the crane cray separate with the meat separate. So you have to use your hands to dip it. That's okay. what I like. That'll be my food. That'll be my dish and I'll bottle champagne. Cheers to that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Consumed. I'm grateful for all of your ears every single day. The podcast is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. I hope you'll support the businesses and people featured this season and come back for another season of Consumed this winter. Until then, take care.